Welcome back to the Just for Kicks podcast. We're coming out of an international break, and this weekend is just one of those weekends in EPL history that even before it takes place, we know we will cherish. We know the ramifications. We're also going to recap USA's kind of tale of two matches that, of course, is their run-in with Germany as well as their victory over Ghana. We're going to take a look at the current state of the group of death in the Champions League, which really could see real ramifications for really quality sides and staples of the most premier European club competition being dumped out way earlier than they historically are or anybody could have anticipated. And we got a massive match to preview in Italy. That, of course, is Juventus, AC Milan. All that and more coming up. However, first, I begin where we always begin. Steve, in lieu of any exciting messy news, I will ask you a singular question. What is the most exciting thing you have seen since we last spoke to our beautiful audience? There was a lot of good international break soccer, but the thing that is going around the internet right now is this video of Xabi Alonso back in training with Bayer Leverkusen, and he's pulling the strings, pinging passes around to all of his players. I think it's a finishing drill, and it is very nostalgic watching him with that like patented low clip, like that perfect backspin. Um, needless to say, the old man still got it. But Messi did score two goals for Argentina this weekend, so he's not dead yet. <laughs> he is not dead yet. Um, far from it. And those weren't qualifying, so consequential goals, of course. I want to reflect for our listeners who did not start following the beautiful game until later in their lives on probably the crowning moment of Jabby Alonso's career and a moment that resonated everywhere, even you know, you in your high school locker rooms. And that, of course, is the miracle in Istanbul where Liverpool playing against an AC Milan side coached by, you know, I think the greatest manager alive or active manager alive, uh, Carlo Ancelotti, especially when it comes to European competition, against a Liverpool side that were heavy underdogs and went into halftime down 3-0. Against the odds, everyone was chanting for Liverpool. A massive you-never-walk-alone chant busted out at halftime. That, of course, was followed by three Liverpool goals, including Xavi Alonso to cap it off. He had a blocked penalty, but he got the rebound. He put it in the back of the net. And after winning in penalties, the rest is history. Steve, is there a more important moment in Jabby Alonso's history? And just how much of that was a motivational tool for anybody that had even a cursory awareness of the beautiful game? Because, you know, sitting in your locker rooms, as, as you know, you told me, sometimes you guys would be down at halftime and the coach would say, dude. If uh, Liverpool can do it against AC Milan, then uh, I think we can figure it out against uh, these kids, right? I feel comfortable saying for certain I've never been down 3-0 at halftime. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I will say that that was the marquee final of the Champions League probably still to this day to the point that like the 99 final that was that craziness that has been recounted in the Bex documentary um, is kind of feels like a distant second, just how wild a 3-0 comeback is against a, a Milan side that was also kind of the cream of the crop at that time, um, plus an underdog Liverpool. I mean, yeah, it was frankly magical to the point that Milan returned the favor to them two years later, and it, no one ever brings that up, even though it kind of felt like they got rid of the ghost. The first event in Istanbul was just so momentous that no one ever mentions it. Um, but yeah, to be a part of that for Xabi Alonso was amazing. I'm sure between that and probably him sliding into the Spain side was the two premier memories I have of him um, as a player. And I mean, honestly, he might even be a better manager at this point. What he's doing at Leverkusen is amazing. And it sounds like he might be the kind of coach in waiting for Real Madrid. That would be phenomenal. And what he achieved at Bayern Munich, what he achieved at Real Madrid was all staggering. And he really, really was the creative force behind a lot of those sides. Yeah, I mean, that's a career that anybody on earth 
almost would sign up for in a heartbeat. Like, and to touch on cracking into that Spain side, you know, the people that you have to displace, you know, whether it was Xavi, whether it was Iniesta, whether it was, I mean, God, David Silva at the peak of his powers, to break into that midfield, Sergio Busquets, that's a staggering achievement. I mean, and they were contemporaries entirely. They're, you know, their careers were peaking at virtually the same time. I mean, how do you dislodge those guys at any capacity ever? Yeah, that's what's so impressive about it is that not only is he dislodging those names and their specific skill sets, but Xabi, Iniesta, and Busquets had, you know, the sixth sense together at Barcelona, and he still was imperative for those Spain sides. Um, I don't know. Strangely, feels like he's an incredibly underrated player from his day, but, you know, so, so impressive. Just always felt unbothered and in complete control in the midfield and blessed to have seen him. Glad that he's doing well at Leverkusen. Yeah, a uh, perfect compliment to Javier Mascarano on those Liverpool sides as well as Steven Gerrard. Um, and then obviously went on to play with just the best of the best. Not that Mascarano and Gerrard aren't the best of the best, but really, really um, at the peak of his powers, played on some of the most important Bayern Munich and Real Madrid sides. So glad he's getting his recognition. Um, if he becomes the next Real Madrid coach, that will be a sight to see. And there's no reason that he won't succeed based on what we've seen so far with Leverkusen. But on that Premier League note, let's dive in because we don't have time for foreplay today. We have just a staggering slate of important matches. And I'll start here because as we look back on how the complexion of the league has shifted, as we look at the table, especially in the wake of Arsenal's defeat of Manchester City, could you have fathomed three years ago that Arsenal would be tied at the top of the table while Chelsea was languishing in you know, full collapse mode with none other than Mauricio Pochettino at the helm and a new American owner who, you know, despite the criticism levied at him, has in- injected a staggering amount of money into their transfers. I-, I just, what a turnaround for two of the biggest rivals and probably the two most important clubs in London. Um, I think these sides have both reached the most Champions League finals among teams in London, you know, especially over the last 20 years. Nobody else in the capital really can compete. Um, how shocked are you that this has transpired and what would you attribute it to? Three years ago, Chelsea was winning a Champions League. Arsenal was languishing in eighth or so with a new manager who was his first gig or right after Emery and kind of felt like they were at risk of being cut adrift from the peloton of the Premier League. Chelsea was very much a hardened part of that. And then, yeah, <laughs> suddenly fortunes changed. Um, Arsenal beat them in that FA Cup semifinal or final. Um, I can't remember which was which. FA Cup final, it looks like. And since then, strangely, just to crept past them. Chelsea obviously had their um, blow up post-Roman Abramovich situation and are still trying to find their footing with the new project. But Arsenal has made the steady climb and completely flipped the script on this match for what it was for, you know, the six or seven years before that. And even during that transition, Arsenal strangely has had a really good record against Chelsea. Um, it, the tides have definitely changed since the early 20 teens. And yeah, Chelsea's chasing Arsenal at this point. I think that's very apparent. And a lot of that uh, included or evident in the fact that they're, copying a lot of their youthful purchasing that I think was inspired by some of what Arsenal was doing two years ago. Well, I mean, chasing, to put it lightly, I mean, they signed Kai Havertz, Jorginho moved over, and it really wasn't much of a fight. Um, they really didn't have the leverage to keep either because Arsenal was the premier side, and switching in that rivalry you know, rarely occurs. Obviously, Olivier Giroud did it recently, Peter Cech did it, but... That kind of satisfied two goalkeepers. Yeah, just kidding. But we love you, Ollie. <laughs> <laughs> but that 
did kind of satisfy both teams' needs at the time. You know, this literally was Kai Havertz, who was as responsible as anybody for winning that second Champions League. And not to mention Mason Mount was shipped out to Man United because despite as much protesting as Chelsea wanted to do, you don't want to be there anymore. He wanted to play Champions League football. He wanted to be at a premier side, and he wanted to put himself in a position to play for the, continue to play for the English national team. So we've seen Chelsea at home play and punch above their weight, especially out of the gate with that draw to Liverpool when we thought that maybe they're going to be a little feistier than they have been this season. I know it's a rivalry. We've got to throw things out the window. There's always been this kind of weird voodoo between Chelsea and Arsenal. You know, there was kind of a period of time about a decade ago when it almost was as if, you know, the three biggest teams had this kind of circular firing squad where it was seemed like Chelsea would almost always beat United. United would almost always beat Arsenal. And Arsenal would always get the upper hand on Chelsea, just like clockwork. And now... What can you reasonably expect Chelsea to do, even at home, even in the you know fortress that once was Stamford Bridge? Is this is this even a trap match anymore, based on Chelsea's recent performance? Or how nervous are you, reason you know rationally? Like we said, those behemoth Chelsea Arsenal matches, both teams and clubs have gone under huge revolutions since then. We're definitely watching a new era of this rivalry. Um, they're both kind of young, and I don't know. I think, yeah, Chelsea's obviously further behind in their project. I don't think that I'm that nervous um, for Arsenal. They should expect to win this match, but I think Chelsea's got the characters who can upset that. Um, Chelsea has been one of the most unlucky clubs so far based on underlying numbers, and I think some of their partnerships and pairings are starting to gel. They certainly have capable individuals, but I don't think they can quite keep up with Arsenal's speed of play if Arsenal really hits their groove. Yeah, I just, I miss the days where, you know, Mourinho sides would face off against Arsene Wenger, and the dynamic cannot be any more different now. I do kind of plan for the days where the Chelsea-Arsenal matches were the you know, premier matches of the league, but then Arsenal kind of hit their desert era and Chelsea's had a hundred percent turnover since then. And yeah, this doesn't quite have the same intensity of those Mourinho, Wenger, Terry hacking down Fabregas fights. <laughs> and um, Yeah. It, I, I think we'll see a little bit more cultured football Saturday from these two. Yeah. Sesk, I'll never play for Chelsea Fabregas. That's the one. Ah, uh, Quite a talented, uh, quite a talented midfield maestro. And yeah, imagine being that good and having two fan bases being completely ambivalent to neutral about you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait, three. I think Barcelona probably feels the same way. And then even further, how bizarre is it that he and Henri ended up at the same Monaco side that just went to absolute garbage like in four seconds? Mm-hmm. You know. Henri doesn't hold a grudge like I would, but Fabricast clearly would not be the guy that I would be dragging into my locker room relying on, you know, orchestrating that entire team if I had the history with him that they two have had together, right? Yeah, I will say that Fabregas has gotten it figured out, though. He got to play professional soccer in London, Barcelona, and Monaco, and now he manages in Lake Como. So, you know, I, I haven't been that fortunate. <laughs> There are worse places to finish up. Yeah. And to a lesser extent, we got to give our man Mourinho credit for being like, you know what? Maybe it's a bygone era for me. Maybe this has passed me by. I'm just going to go to Rome and chill. I mean, that that doesn't suck. Speaking of which, they came out this week that he is going to be gone at the end of the season. Really? Which is a crazy thing to say in October to me, but we'll see. Is this a mutual agreement or yeah exactly they haven't had a great start to the season so i think they're agreeing to part this is the kind of news you typically see in april right where it's like we've got four games left let's all just end this amicably but they have like 30 games left and a couple tournaments so uh we'll see how that turns out i mean is this to appease any potential uproar from the fans or maybe fringe fans um, who just feel grateful for having Mourinho there but aren't necessarily 
you know, in the weeds and kind of looking at the data and understanding that they're not really performing up to their skill level. And Mourinho has always been known to do well in knockout competitions. And, you know, I know he made it to the final, but coming up short, you know, in Europa was just heartbreaking for that side. Yeah, I don't know. It's hard to say. It just kind of feels like maybe the relationship's fractured with him and leadership, and they're ready to move on from it. Um, I don't think that he wanted to be there this year. I'm not sure they wanted him there. But the Europa success forced everybody to kind of go for one more try, and it's not working out. And, yeah, they'll end up separated come May at the latest, and I surely doubt that's the last we've heard of Mourinho in Rome. He will not go quietly. Yeah, talk about a career trajectory. Um, you know, this is a guy that literally was considered the savant of the Champions League. And, you know, I, you know, outside of the years that, um, you know, he was able to surpass Barcelona's point total in between two of their best seasons ever as manager of Real Madrid. And, his Champions League victory at Porto and just his complete dominance and undefeated streak at Chelsea. Um, some of his biggest achievements in the later part of his career have been, you know, getting Man United to second place in that year when City was just completely running away with it and they had no business being anywhere near the top four, let alone second. And getting Roma to overperform before it seemed like the talent surpassed the value he was adding to them. So, you know, I wonder what's next for him because four years ago, if somebody said, can Jose Mourinho be the next manager of the U.S. national teams? I'd, I'd be like, can he? Now I'm worried he'd lose the locker room. Uh, I think I would still take him as manager of the United States. I <laughs> Over Greg Beerhalter. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, of course, but I don't know. I, my hesitation there would be the fact that it, I think we actually have enough talent to play exciting soccer, and I doubt that Mourinho would bring that, but I also think that he would unquestionably be the best thing that we'd be able to bring through that door if he were to become a candidate, but I seriously doubt that's going to happen. Yeah, and we'll circle back to the United States um, and national team performance over the past week, but again, we got to chug through just some massive fixtures. Yeah, sorry, we got completely lost on a Chelsea-Arsenal match that's happening this weekend. Mourinho is going to be several countries over and completely uninvolved, and we still wound up talking about him somehow. Um, well, I think we've fallen victim to the same thing that the press has fallen victim to, and you know he really has <laughs> orchestrated for the better part of his career. I mean, I remember when Real Madrid signed Kaká and Cristiano Ronaldo and the arrival of Mourinho almost surpassed even that within the press. I mean, it's just he he's the sun god in, in so many ways. Not anymore. You know what they say about stars? <laughs> what do they say about stars? Uh, a lot of things, but mostly that they burn bright and then blow up or something. Yeah. Well, I'm not saying that the man responsible for, you know, really – kind of taking the reins as best manager alive um, across European domestic and continental competition is going to burn out himself bright. But Pep Guardiola's tenure at Manchester City is winding down. And we thought that throughout the duration of his tenure there, and again, it's early in the season, they played some matches without key cogs. But we did not think on the heels of one of the most impressive seasons in the history of the sport that they would be such slow starters this season. Um, again, last season, there was a World Cup. There were all these external factors. Pep openly came out and said, our goal is to hang around until after the World Cup and then make a run. Maybe there's a similar approach this year. Maybe they're not afforded the luxury of doing anything but given the injuries to De Bruyne and the recent absence of Rodri. But even so, they have looked mortal. They've looked pedestrian. Against the last slate of, what, three EPL sides that they faced? I mean, for a team that's won this many meaningful matches... 
in the English Premier League for so long to feel this flat and to be in this rut right now in and of itself is surprising. It's a weird sight. And now they're facing a Brighton side that is at a crossroads because they really have to establish themselves to really lay claim as somebody who's a serious contender for the top four. A couple of weeks ago, we threw them in the list of teams that theoretically might challenge for the title. We threw them in the second tier. Now some untimely losses, some untimely ugly losses have really put Brighton behind the eight ball. But we know what they're capable of. We know these are two of the brightest minds in the sport into Serbia going against Guardiola. City is favored and should be favored. But this really is an opening, especially with the way City has been playing, even with their turner Rodri, to reassert themselves as a team that should not be discounted. Um, what are Brighton's chances against City? And is the return of Rodri just simply enough to put faith back on that side? I think so. They're unbeaten with him this season. They lost all their matches without him. It's kind of baffling to think that one player could be that important, but I think Rodri is, and not just in what he brings individually, but the fact that he allows everyone around him to then kind of play to their strengths. Um, they were making up for him with Calvin Phillips, and <sighs> that's a fall off. No disrespect to the former Leeds man, but that's a fall off. Yeah, exactly. And now he's a one-man midfield that allows Bernardo Silva to no longer have to play central mid defensive midfield and he can go back up front and start creating the supply lines to Holland have kind of dried up during that uh Rodri absence as well and so I think that him kind of providing that anchor for them will let all the creative players forward improve that output and subsequently Holland will probably benefit himself and it just kind of feels like they were licking their wounds probably a little bit coming out of that Arsenal match realizing that they're in for a little bit more of a fight than they thought and now they've got their guy back, and I think we'll see them maybe with a little bit of rust, but ultimately return to that team that we saw went, went six off the bat to start the season. Yeah, and I think that his absence really highlights how instrumental he has been in the side. We all know that he is an incredibly key cog, both defensively and what he allows people to do offensively. And again, he's the only player in the history of Manchester City to score a goal in the Champions League final. So let us not forget that. That's the that's the crazy thing about him is he's not just this fulcrum from which all else things branch at the base of midfield like so many other defensive midfielders are. Like he contributes to goals very consistently at this point. Like he's absolutely irreplaceable i think that's obvious but like his amount of contribution in every department just is completely unreal and like it's a completely different city it's a completely different city and i hate especially in the sport really comparing people who both have similar albeit different skill sets that we should celebrate but at this point is his just complete necessity within the city side you know, is this analogous to how, you know, Sergio Busquets operated within Pep's Barcelona sides? Or would you even say it surpasses that given his ability to contribute moving forward? Or maybe Sergio Busquets was a little more assured defensively relative to the competition that he faced in Spain. Yikes. Um, <laughs> <sighs> who's better, Babe Ruth or Shohei Otani? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Shohei Otani. Um, so I guess that means the answer to this question is Rodri. I I mean, I would probably lean Rodri. I think he's got a little bit more in more categories. Busquets was kind of like I was talking about earlier. I was like, he's kind of that anchor. He let everybody else go out and um, have their druthers. But Rodri ends up pitching in a little bit more on the offensive end now, I would say. But that said, like, given his assignment and how good he was at literally every single aspect of that. I'm, I'm not putting anyone ahead of Busquets. One, a one B. Yeah. There's, there's no one better 
at being Sergio Busquets than Sergio Busquets. But and like, what do you really need him to do if he can pass the ball ten yards forward and it ends up with Iniesta, Xavi, or Messi? Like, <laughs> that's better than anything Rodri's going to do going forward. I'm sorry. Like, I know he scored in the UCL final, but like, outside of that, I would rather have a guy who can complete a pass to those three and just do his job. But again, I'm, I'm not taking sides on this. They are both completely press resistant which allowed these teams to just flow in a creative way that transcends a lot of stuff that we've ever seen in this sport. They should both be celebrated. So I guess that leads to the million-dollar question, depending on how much you're going to be wagering on this match or whether we recommend you wager on this match. Is the talent gap just too big here, or do you think that Servi can take advantage of a faltering city side. And do you think he circled this on the calendar and said, we got to put on a show? I think they can handle them. Um, They drew them last season. Granted, Man City had wrapped up the league by that point. But this is exactly the kind of team that Brighton's built to beat. Well, maybe a little bit less so. Where they want a team that's anxious without the ball, who almost can't help but to press. And for the most part, that was Man City. But I think... Pep has learned a lesson, and that was one of the reasons they went on their great run last season, especially the Arsenal game where I think they had like 40% possession. They kind of became more comfortable and mature without the ball. I think he actually learned a lot from Deserby, both in the risk of pressing and the benefits of playing out of the back. And I'm very interested to see um, what Pep's going to show Deserby this weekend, what he learned from him even. Um, Brighton's going to do their thing and I'm curious to see what City's approach to it is Um, if they go helter-skelter heavy press leaving space at the back yeah I think Brighton can get to them Um, but at the same time I I, Pep's pretty clever and I'm interested to see if he's figured out an approach to kind of mitigate this Brighton system and even last year when they drew it took literally the goal of the season from NCSO to draw Um, so it's hard to envision Brighton winning this game, but they can definitely do some damage. They definitely can. Moving on down the list, a really, really compelling fixture. Aston Villa, West Ham. West Ham, complete resurgence from last season to reassert themselves as a side that should be at least competing for European placement um, and be scratching the surface of the top four at the absolute peak of their powers. And then we have an Aston Villa side that showed no signs of being stoppable in any capacity last season that languished at the beginning, has had some uneven performances, but is trending upwards in a big, big way. How crucial is this match this early in the season, especially if one side bags three points, to assert themselves as a team that can get into Europa and keep hope alive for the top four if something falls apart. This is probably the most underrated matchup of the weekend, I would say. Um, I, I think we've said it before that Aston Villa is sharpied in X6. Mm-hmm. I still feel comfortable saying that. But West Ham used to be. That's the funny thing. And what, yeah, West Ham used to be. Um, and I think this is a really good opportunity for West Ham, even if they can get a draw, to kind of solidify them by themselves as contenders for the European places. Again, the Aston Villa litmus test, and these teams are just both so damn sure of who they are and how they're going to play. You can almost guarantee that West Ham's going to sit back, launch counters, and Aston Villa is going to play a high line with a high press, and it's all going to look very familiar. And I'm very interested to see how those two systems um, handle each other, I guess. Surprisingly, West Ham has been incredibly good in this fixture they have not lost the last 10 meetings wow yeah i was very surprised to learn that i am curious to see if that continues their only two losses this season have been liverpool and man city i think this is um very very compelling mid top table fixture whoa 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 west ham's only two losses this season are to liverpool and manchester city that's correct I had to pause there to make sure you weren't messing up and talk about Aston Villa, even though I do recall um, a different slip-up that would negate that. That, my friends, is impressive. And after last year, I didn't see that coming this season at any capacity. 
Especially right out of the gate. No, they've completely remade themselves. And the thing is, Moyes, in that first few games of the season, just knowing who you are and being committed to that, like committing to the shot, basically, is so underrated. And they came out of the blocks, and other teams are still finding their footing, finding their chemistry. And West Ham was like, you know, they had to replace Declan Rice. They remade the midfield, but they brought in some really seasoned professionals, and they've really hit the ground running. And that attack, Jared Bowen, uh, Antonio, Fornals, Ben Rama, they all know exactly what their job is, and they execute to a T. And I, they fully earn this, and I'm fascinated to watch what is uh, probably like fifth, sixth, seventh best teams in the league right now um, going head-to-head. But on their day, I mean, they could dance with anybody. Yep, totally. And that's really, really what's so impressive here. But <laughs> speaking of... David Moyes and West Ham, because it seemed like there was, you know, we always joked about how the top four was so hard to dislodge teams, but there was this era, you know, after the decline of Newcastle and before the rise of Manchester City, where it almost seemed like, it almost seemed like Everton was like perpetually fifth and West Ham was like perpetually sixth. And now, Everton is facing Liverpool at Anfield. You know, it is a Merseyside derby. And maybe Liverpool will claim that Manchester United is their biggest rival. But we know that the absolute least love is lost in this fixture. Is this, even with Everton's current state, is this a throw the record books out the window this is going to be a scrap fest or no love loss. Yeah. No love loss. Or is this because it's at Anfield and we know the history of this fixture at Anfield and there's the talent discrepancy there. There will not be much to say. And even if Liverpool are down a man or two, which they have been for approximately 75% of this season, (laughs) you see any way Everton gets points off Liverpool. Um, I do think that this rivalry presents itself to some record book being tossed in the trash, whatever cliche. Um, sorry, I butchered that, but we know what you mean, man. Yeah. In Klopp's 18 matches against Everton, they're 10 wins, seven draws and a loss. So Everton rarely wins this, but they can be a huge thorn. That said, most of those results at Anfield have gone Liverpool's way. I think that's the kicker. This is the biggest spread of the weekend. It's the biggest total. The bookies definitely think that Liverpool's going to take it to them. Um, I think it has a chance to be closer than expected just because it's a rivalry match. San Dyke will bite your hand off for a draw right now, and they're going to fight tooth and nail for that. But, yeah, I, I mean, Liverpool's so much stronger than they are. Yeah. And growing in power, seemingly. <laughs> If they can keep everybody on the field, fair or unfair, who's going to stop them? Or, yep. or, or are they stronger with 10 men at this point? I mean, what's going on? Yeah, they must look around whenever they get 11 people on the field and be like, wait, someone needs to go off. We have This is too easy. There's too many people to pass to. Should they just start starting four forwards because the, the expectation is that you know somebody's going to get sent off and then they can correct from there? Yeah, they, they should start with 10. <laughs> Start with 10 and then just have Darwin just like, you know, smoking a cig on the sidelines and then just have him run in whenever, whenever he sees a lane. I will say, it, I feel like if they play this match with 10 men for even 60 minutes, I would probably still pick Liverpool. That's the discrepancy of these two. Plus, Gakpo's out injured probably still, but the firepower that Liverpool's bringing off the bench right now, like, they're just relentless going forward. Yeah, and it's a completely revitalized midfield. Who would have thought that it took sending Jordan Henderson all the way to Saudi Arabia to do it and even losing Fabinho in the process. But like we keep saying, it is night and day. The kids are all right in a midfield that we were really trying to make sense of. Yeah, they don't have that necessarily like defensive acumen and shielding of Fabinho in midfield, but they upgraded their, I don't know, youthful activity tenfold and just and your Klopp system like that's so important like you have to have people who are willing to cover every blade of grass and 
they're more than capable of that and have really found their footing. I mean, they're they're back to being one of the more dangerous teams in the league, to say the least. Yeah, it's heavy metal football again. And regardless of, you know, your defensive acumen, these guys know where to press, how to press, what to occupy, how to smother, how to at least cover passing lanes, and how to slow the other team down in a way that maybe transcends having the type of roadblock that Fabinho was in midfield. Um, they're red hot, and before Arsenal's victory over City, I've been preaching that they are the biggest existential threat to City, and they are back in the way that they have been in years prior. So we'll see what happens. But moving abroad really quickly, because uh, we have a massive blockbuster match in Syria that has huge title implications. And also, it's just the latest example to show what the U.S. men's national team is doing abroad, whether it's Tristan Pulisic, Eunice Musa, Weston McKinney. What can you say about the state of Syria relative to how impactful American players have become in that league. And how exciting is it going to be to see this match with this much ramifications clearly being decided like many matches before, especially on the AC Milan side by American players. I think I've said it plenty of times. This is the most exciting title race in Europe as far as for being an American fan, um, strictly because of those American players on those teams. They all have, heavy contributions and these are some of the biggest clubs i mean they're the three two of the three biggest clubs in italy but they're three of the biggest two of the biggest clubs in europe altogether um it's very important that we have players playing in this kind of level in these kind of championships and i mean it we, we need to be a little bit honest like Serie's definitely had a bit of a ebb the last decade or so but it's it's coming back steadily and these Players are playing for huge clubs in very intense competitive games and at an extremely high level that we have not seen Americans play at for the most part ever. And I think that, uh, you know, been very much looking forward to this specific match all season just because we knew that it was going to be a high concentration of Americans. Hopefully, all four can make it onto the field at the same time. And yeah, I'm excited to watch it even as a neutral just to kind of see us on that stage and hopefully it all goes well yeah and i agree the best league is obviously the premier league second it's got to be spain especially in terms of what's going on at the top but syria is really creeping back and you know i know there is a certain amount of fate, luck, and chance that always can disrupt a certain team's path in the Champions League. But let us not discount that Italy had three of the eight teams in the quarters last year. You know, had the draw gone different, where two Italian sides didn't have to face off in the quarters, there could have been three. And our semifinal was AC Milan against Inter Milan. And that's something we haven't seen in a while. And to be doing that while at the same time having such a competitive title race speaks not only to the depth of these sides, but what they've achieved, how far the league has come. And on that note, if these teams are that deep and American players are coming in and having as much influence on these matches as they have, I mean, you know, statistics aside, Christian Pulisic is scoring the deciding Goals against the best competition AC Milan is facing. That, by any characterization, currently is one of the three most important signings in Italy. Would you not agree? I would have to rack my brain on that for just a second. But yes, he has had an immediate impact with them. And they're one of the most important and um, favorite clubs to win the title in the season. So yeah, they needed to add a little bit more firepower and attack. They went to one of our guys and he's holding up his end of the bargain. So it, it's hard to argue about that. Um, I think that the real benefit of all of this really is just having our players in clubs like that, that have such an intense historical long-term winning mentality. 
historical and long-term meaning the same thing. Sorry, everybody. And <laughs> you got to hammer the point home for the kids sometimes. Yeah, yeah. But them being around those clubs where the only option is to win, being around that kind of infrastructure and those players in training and that kind of mentality and talent level cannot be understated. Like, it's been nice to have players in Europe, but having them on teams that have that kind of pressure and play on the front foot. I mean, like, all due respect to Dempsey at Fulham and Donovan at Everton, like, there's a lot of defensive football there, and we want our players on the ball attacking and, like, learning those types of, um, you know, tactics, for lack of a better word. That's pretty American for you. And this extends to Gio Reyna and Dortmund as well. Like, it, it's nice to see them at the top end. Um, and I fully expect that they'll have a pretty strong role to play in the Derby this weekend. Sorry, English folk. Yeah, and again, the EPL, I think, is the deepest, strongest league with the most parity. But there's something about playing in Spain, and in this case, Italy, for one of those top sides where there really isn't a margin for error in terms of what's expected of you because you have that stature relative to the rest of the clubs in the league. And if you aren't performing as a starter, there really aren't any excuses or plan Bs. You know, these sides are expected to perform at a higher level because of the competition they face. And that's pressure. That's real week-in, week-out pressure. And these Americans are performing. Yeah, exactly. You want you want to see these guys not just in Europe. Like it's exciting to see them in these pressure cookers at these clubs where failure is not an option. And that's that can only be a good thing for our United States program going forward. And it's certainly inspiring confidence. Um, you know, speaking of Gio Reyna, I I'm very excited that he scored over the uh international break. Man of the match. Yeah, man of the match in a friendly against Ghana. Who would have thunk that who'd have thunk that when he's barely on speaking terms with his own manager. Um, I also love the confidence coming out of Juventus's Wes McKinney saying that these are the types of matches we expect to win before facing off against Germany. Ultimately, they lost 3-1, but it's a friendly. It was an important friendly. And before we reflect on the United States' performance against Germany, this is a very, very important moment, albeit in a friendly, albeit against, sorry, everybody hold on to your souls, inferior opposition. <laughs> because Euro is approaching quickly, and this is Julian Nagelsmann's first time at the helm for Germany as their manager after his unceremonious dismissal at Bayern Munich, which many have said backfired in its wake. Germany looks, and again, very small sample size. They look very, very self-assured. And with the small sample size, it looks like that was the right hire and they are back to trending in the right direction. Yeah, I think the main thing that Germany wanted to see was some cohesion and, I don't know, unity. Something that just kind of gone lacking during Hansi Flick. They just looked like a bunch of spare components that never really I don't know if it was a communication level from the top down or if they didn't have communication on the field or what but the Nagelsmann product definitely looked better and I mean certainly more productive I think that that was a very welcome sight for uh, the German fans and the German national team I still don't think they've shown nearly enough to be a favorite and admittedly I did not watch them against Mexico but that was a step in the right direction and not too soon either I mean Euros is going to be here very quickly and they need to show up soon. Yeah. And again, it's all about trends. Hansi Flick was undefeated as Germany's manager until right before the World Cup crept up and things just came apart. Yeah, I mean, they used to be a lock for major tournament semifinals. I'm talking about like an 80 to 90% clip for like 40 years. And I don't know the last time we've seen them even in a quarterfinal. No, I mean, there was a period of time where I was literally just like, can we just pause the tournament and just and again like I love I love the World Cup. I want to watch every second of every match. It's the greatest thing ever. But there was always this kind of thing in the back of my mind that was creeping that was like, this is amazing pageantry. But 
I can't wait until Brazil plays Germany in the final. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. And it's just a completely, completely new era. Um, you know, Brazil's had a resurgence, but they're not old Brazil. But Germany, my God, I never thought this federation would be in this state, especially after winning the World Cup. It has just been an unmitigated disaster since that victory. Before 2020, Germany had made nine of 13 European championship semifinals. What? Six finals. So, yes. <sighs> if Aston Villa can be sharpied into six, then up until four years ago, Germany could be chiseled into marble in the semifinals. Yeah. And unfortunately, they many times were the bridesmaid and not the bride. But again, they got there against the elite competition and this this is a positive first baby step for julian nagelsman and this germany side um u.s men's national team you know parting thoughts they showed a certain fight and a certain resilience but ultimately the only way to characterize this match against germany was that they were outclassed probably could have been worse but to have the resiliency to bounce back against Ghana and also Gio Reyna looking healthy, looking integrated, you know, flowing within this side in the way that we've come to expect, come to hope, especially in the wake of their victories with the A-team in the Nations League tournament. you have any, any additional thoughts or takeaways? Um, Greg didn't screw this up and... The kids got to play a match against elite competition and also got to play a match that they needed to win and wasn't so much a friendly in terms of their mentality and how they approached it, which is kind of on balance the best two ways to approach an international break in the fixtures that you schedule. I don't want to get too high or too low on friendlies. And that goes for both the loss to Germany and the win versus Ghana. Um, I liked what Weston said, that we expect to be winning these kind of matches, but the reality is if Germany's on song, we're not going to beat them. But I do like that mentality. I like that we did appear to try to play with them a little bit. Um, I think if it weren't a friendly, we would have had a different approach. But at the very least, um, it was good to see some spark from that front four against Ghana, see them have some chemistry, everybody get a goal kind of. In fact, the last 44 goals by the United States men's national team have been scored by players 25 or younger. So there's a long, long ramp up ahead of us, and that's very exciting. Um, I also enjoyed watching Gio's goal, which was an indirect free kick from inside the box. Um, and I will give Bearhalter credit. The way that that went down made me think that that was prescribed by the coaching staff and worked on, so they are paying attention to something. <laughs> it's a low bar, but we're happy with it. <laughs> I don't know. My big takeaway, again, it's friendlies, so I don't want to get too wrapped up in it. I didn't see much of the Ghana game, but against Germany, we were just so rushed to score when we got the ball. And I just want, like, we have so much talent. We have players who play in Europe against in top teams. Like, just everybody relax and chill out. The game's 90 minutes long. This one was a friendly. Slow it down and play a little. Um I hope Greg, before the next set of matches, just shows them prime Spain. Mm -hmm. Shout out Xavi Alonso, passing around, killing games with no intent to score. Um, maybe the one where we got tortured four to nothing by Spain would do. <laughs> and just watch how the best teams control a match and put their foot on the gas and the brake and like take care of themselves for 90 minutes. It doesn't have to be that hard. Um, we will learn more about this team though against Trinidad and Tobago. <laughs> Trigger warning, man. Hold on a second. I'll calm you down. We got the two legged CONCACAF Nations League quarterfinals in November. That's the next set of matches. The real importance of that is that the winner earns a spot at next summer's Copa America, um, a tournament we absolutely must be a part of. But for Joey and anyone else out there who's worried about the Trinidad and Tobago, disaster of the past do not let that ghost scare you our last three matches against them we have won six nothing seven nothing and six nothing so well i i hope 
on that note, I hope for Italy's sake that the next, next three times they face off against Northern Macedonia, they could have similar results because that's something that'll haunt them for a very long time. And speaking candidly, I, Trinidad and Tobago match was not something that I was super clued in on for the first 10, 15 minutes. I then turned it on. I knew what was on the line. But I just never in a bazillion years, even given our stature at that time relative to now, thought that we would not do what we needed to do to make it to the World Cup. And I understand that Copa is not the World Cup, but like you said, it's a tournament we absolutely have to be a part of to take the next step, to play against elite competitions, to send a warning to the rest of the continent and to the world at large that we're not messing around. So, yeah, we just don't get that much from CONCACAF qualifying, especially now that Mexico's kind of, eh. Yeah. It, it's imperative that we play in Copa in a competitive environment against hopefully Brazil or Argentina, but at the very least, Colombia, Uruguay, Chile, something of that sort. Yeah. No, absolutely. And those, those would all be key fixtures in high-stake situations that can only prepare us for better or for worse, depending on the outcome, for us to take the next step in the World Cup and continue to evolve in a way that people have been saying the United States is going to for, what, 30 years? <laughs> but it's finally here. Off and on, yeah. Yeah, off and on. Um, I'd be really, really remiss not to touch on what's happening in the Champions League this upcoming week because the historic group of death you know, it might might be a crucial separation fixture as you know Newcastle, despite a slow start, but I would probably take the draw against Milan, all things considered, can pretty much shore up a spot relative to the you know infighting that we certainly can expect from PSG, Milan, and Dortmund in the knockout stages. And what a sight it would be to have Newcastle in the knockout stages and also eliminate. Dortmund in the process again mathematically there's still so many possibilities left but with these teams trending the way they are it really looks like this might be Dortmund's last stand before we start hoping for a real resurgence or a collapse from PSG or Milan who will also be facing off because as it stands only two matches played but Newcastle's at the top with four points in Group F of the Champions League. PSG has three, Milan has two, and Dortmund has one. Do you think that Newcastle is going to be putting one more foot in the grave for Dortmund? And is there anything you expect from this PSG-Milan match other than a scrap fest between a rejuvenated group of kids and PSG and a Milan team that is red hot? Newcastle at home against Dortmund, that's a huge home field advantage at St. James Park, exemplified by their win against PSG. Um, I, yeah, for all intents and purposes, a win for Newcastle would bury Dortmund, I would think, and I kind of expect them to pull that off. I guess I'm trying to decide which of these matches to watch because Newcastle-Dortmund is obviously very interesting, but PSG-AC Milan has Leao, Pulisic, and Kylian Mbappe, so... Trying to figure out which one to put on the parlor wall and which one to put on your laptop that you glance at. Probably lean PSG AC Milan on this one, I suppose. Yeah, that's that's going to be a fascinating fixture. Although there's just there's something magical about seeing Newcastle back in the Champions League. You know, it's just it's just a nostalgia fest. So make sure to check those matches out midweek. It's about as magical as internal combustion. <laughs> exactly. Um, well, now we turn our attention to, like we do every week, the greatest competition in the history of podcasting. That is the Steve and Joey both pick a player who they think will score a goal or mo multiple goals during the week. And whoever loses has to get hit or potentially eaten by the sandwich likely rancid or animal or other entity of the winner's choice. It's a catchy name. Is it hyphenated? It's a, Yeah. It's a catchy name. It's an evolving name. And I hope whoever loses is not, you know, 
I'm trying to choose how graphic my language is going to be here. Um, forced to encounter a highly evolved and very dangerous species for losing this competition. So we'll do this for you, listeners. What are there, 30 weeks left in the season? Yeah. So each week, we're going to take one word off of the title. By the end of the season, we're going to have this pared down to some beautiful little phrase. I want it to be, no, 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 no. Not only that, I just want it to be like a single syllable. Um, You're asking so much. <laughs> Listen, we can do things that are difficult. Um, like predict who is going to score in this upcoming weekend with a fixed and diminished set of players because we're running out fast because we've gone top heavy. You still haven't used Erling Holland yet, so <laughs> I haven't. When that when that happens, if you pick your poison correctly, yeah. Ooh, <laughs> that could be separation. Um but as it stands, where 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 are we at? Do you still have a one goal lead? I have a one goal lead. It's three to two. Me, um, we're both on a series of blanks. If you want to know how good we are at this, um, we've both picked the young men's son's blank game weeks, and he has six goals this season. So, um, <laughs> you know, we're gonna we're gonna try and turn this around. But I'm about to do something erratic, and this is the equivalent of basically losing all of your money at the roulette table and putting your last chip on zero or something. Okay. This is not the smartest thing I've done yet, but um, I'm going to take the former player, former team trend to its absolute limit this weekend mm -hmm. or uh, close to the absolute limit. I'm not picking James Milner at Man City. <laughs> um, I am going to take Kai Havertz returning to the bridge. Somehow he is only 350. That should be a lot higher. <laughs> Um, for a guy who only has one penalty goal to his name this season, but maybe familiar surroundings and a little extra motivation, get the new boy going. That's That'll be a heartbreaker. That'll be a backbreaker. But the reception you know that man's going to get once he walks in to Stanford Bridge, um, if it's mixed, then the Chelsea fans have lost the plot. But, I mean, he might not play. <laughs> If Martinelli has anything to say about it, he won't. And this isn't like fantasy Premier League. Like, I don't have a sub if he doesn't play. It's it's Havertz or bust. It is Havertz or bust. So I don't want to burn another, you know, uh, staple of what we know are about as big of a known commodities as they can be in this sport. But I got to catch up and I think Liverpool's just going to tee off against Everton. So I think you know where I'm going with this. And given the Gakpo injury, I briefly debated going with Darwin. But does it rhyme with Baba's lie? Uh, it does not rhyme with Baba's lie. <laughs> but given the man's potential to just completely dump goals in, and, you know, as Steve has clarified for me, has never had less than 19 goals in a season while playing for, in the English Premier League. Um, and I believe that dates back to 1993. Um, Steve didn't give me that statistic, so you guys will have to check that at home. I'm going Mo Salah, Liverpool at home against Everton. I hope that he can not only get me level with Steve, but uh, hopefully have a hat trick. Four, five, six, seven, eight. Um, yeah, that, that would be ideal. Right. Yeah. You, you might not tie it up this weekend. You might blow past me like a spaceship. Um, does Zabaslai have a song at Liverpool yet? I'm very curious what they rhyme with Zabaslai. I mean, he's got to because of that fan base and their history. But like, what do you rhyme with Zabaslai? I just put it into a rhyming dictionary and it returns not lie, wash my, wash thy, watch my, rock sly. Rock Sly, that's got potential, I feel like. Watch my Rock Sly. Rocks like. You could probably get that into the Zaba Sly rhyme. You know, that's got some heavy metal football potential in it. Anyway, yeah, they, they get worse from there. Um, but there you go, Liverpool and Anfield. We, we did your work for you. Yeah, you're one third of the way there, um, if you don't have one already. And when we come back, we will have the hottest betting tips in all of the galaxy to get you even more ramped up for this blockbuster EPL 
weekend. Welcome back to the Just for Kicks podcast. We have another slate of hot off the presses betting tips for this weekend. We have been absolutely out of our minds despite a couple of recent setbacks. Um, but again, if you have been writing us this year, you will have no complaints. And this weekend is shaping up to be no different. Steve, maybe you're biased, but I do think that Arsenal plus 130 at Chelsea is just too easy of money. Um, has Arsenal conceded on the road this season? Not yet. Um, okay, well, that's huge. And then additionally, um, we also really like Nottingham Forest to continue our trend of betting against Luton. That's minus 160, but that's easy money. And then lastly, Bournemouth, Wolves, draw plus 240. These are both low-scoring sides, and we expect this to be no different. This matches on a razor's edge, and there's a lot of value in that draw. So those have been your bets. Uh, now let's talk about the matches that we are going to be watching this weekend. Saturday is going to be an incredibly, incredibly exciting day. Sunday as well, but on Saturday at 10 o'clock on USA, you can check out Brighton taking on Manchester City. It's going to be a massive match with huge implications, as we outlined earlier in the pod. And then after that, switch over to NBC at 1230, where you can check out Chelsea against Arsenal. Steve, I know you'll be watching that. Is there any other match that particularly strikes your fancy this weekend? I know we got a massive slate. Yeah, I think I'm most interested by Aston Villa West Ham on Sunday. It's on USA at 1130. Um, I just think these are two of the more interesting best of the rest, so to speak. And they usually have pretty good, intense, classic English matches. I'm I'm looking forward to that match, maybe the most of all in this weekend. Yeah. No, that's going to be a huge one. It's going to be the most compelling. And probably the one that, just in terms of you know figuring out. You know, it's just like claret and blue. It's English, man. It's English as can be. It's going to be great. It's very English. These sides know who they are. And they're going to not shy away from really, really trying to take it to the other side. Birmingham versus London, Second City versus the Capital. I mean, it doesn't get any better than that. It, they should all wear those like little caps and use a brown ball. <laughs> they really should. They should be doing that anyways. So um, anything else uh, you would like to mention to uh, blow the kids' minds before we go? I would. Um, this past weekend, Cristiano Ronaldo scored his 100th goal of the decade. He has now scored 100 goals in three separate decades. Does a slight disservice to what he actually did in the aughts and the 20-teens, but he made it again. Um, he is the sixth player to ever do that. And shout out Michael Bradley, who's announcing his retirement at the end of the season. Um, at one point was one of the, you know, he was the metronome of the U.S. team and one of our few players who was kicking it in the big leagues over in Europe had that spell at a, uh, Gladbach and Roma as well. Uh, that's kind of the height of the U.S. men's team at that point. And uh, get well soon to Neymar, who underwent surgery for his ACL after injuring it in the South American qualifiers. Ugh. Well, that's, that's just less than ideal, as were our viewing options. Yeah, I mean, he's getting up in age, moved to Saudi Arabia. We might have seen the best of Neymar at this point. It's a really sad ending. Yeah, especially when there's a system completely built for him finally but we'll see um not uh not casting doubt on the rest of his career just yet so thanks again for listening to the just for kicks podcast i also want to highlight we have a special episode that we'll be releasing recapping the compelling beckham documentary that will slide into our feed um very very soon but you can find us where you normally can find us for auxiliary content and the latest updates. And that is on Instagram and other meta-owned platforms where we are the Just for Kicks podcast, on the artist formerly known as Twitter, now known as X. We're Just for Kicks FC. Check us out on TikTok, Just for Kicks podcast. And of course, if you just want to go straight to the RSS feed, 
and see everything that we have with no pageantry, all the guts and all the glory. Go to justforkicks.soccer. It's been great chatting with you, Stephen. It has been an amazing international break, and we are primed for all the Premier League action and everything else that is going to be taking place this weekend. We hope you have a wonderful, wonderful weekend of viewing, and we can't wait to talk to you again soon.